Amen. Thank you for your singing this morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. We'll read together. Follow along as I read aloud. God's word says, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now forty days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. When the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die. In my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. When they had come to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his fathers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. 
Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. This is God's word, and may he bless it as we read it. <clears throat> you may have noticed in the bulletin that uh, the sermon title is the next in pastor's series on the law. The ninth word of the Decalogue, and it's, the text is Exodus 20.16. We are not in Exodus 20.16 this morning. I think it was a little bit of a perfect storm about when the bulletins were printed and when the pastor came down with something. You can keep him in prayer and even reach out to him. I know it would be an encouragement to him. Uh, don't we often think of people we don't see and then, you know, I need to text them and then we forget. Um, can reach out to each other, pray for pastor. The Lord would raise him up. This is, I trust, the last in a series of sermons that we've been considering from the last uh, few chapters of Genesis, Genesis 37 through 50. The generations of Jacob particularly focus on the characters of Joseph and Jacob, the two pillars, you could say, of the sons of Jacob, the great seed of Jacob that rise above the other of their brothers. And as we draw to a close here in this series, it's good to remember that this book is a book of beginnings, as the name suggests, the name Genesis. We have our introduction to God. Of course, God himself has no beginning. He's existed, always been, always will be. But we meet him. In the beginning was God created the heaven and the earth. The beginning of creation. The beginning of man. The beginning of sin. The beginning of life under the curse. The beginning of death and human society, and of rebellion. The beginning, you'll remember as you think through the book, of God's covenant with his chosen people. Faith in the patriarchs. That specific promise of a land of blessing and of a great nation. And finally, eventually, after much difficulty, the beginning of that family through Abraham in the chosen son Isaac. And then in Jacob, and then in Jacob the chosen twin and then down into Joseph and Judah and the 12 tribes. God is building a nation who will be a witness and a blessing to the whole earth. God is making these beginnings because God is sovereign. And then as we come to this final chapter, after Jacob has blessed Joseph, given him a double portion of the inheritance, blessed all of his sons with blessings appropriate to them, and now he has died in the final scene in this chapter, I think we can understand this chapter in three parts. There are three settings, you may have noticed, centered around three conversations. The first comes in the days and weeks following Jacob's death as Joseph speaks with Pharaoh. And then the second scene, you may have headings that break it up here, I think, helpfully, rightly. 
The second scene and conversation comes between Joseph and his brothers some months later after Jacob's burial. And then that final scene, starting in verse 22, comes some 50 years after that as Joseph nears his own death and he addresses his entire family. We could divide this chapter in various ways, look at different characters, because it could be a chapter about Jacob or about the relationship with Egypt, but as Joseph is the character in each of these scenes, the common denominator, I believe we can learn a great deal about Joseph and take our lessons that way and understand first that Joseph blesses Israel by honoring his father along with Egypt. Where we're going, what we're considering is how Joseph blesses Egypt. In each case, he is a blessing either to his father, Israel, or to the family of Israel. Joseph blesses Israel. And here first in the opening scene, the opening section, he blesses Israel by honoring his father along with Egypt. And you'll notice if you look in the first three verses, what is... Joseph do, he honors Jacob's body, doesn't he? As he mourns along with the Egyptian people. He mourns his father, falls on him, weeps over him, kisses him, commands that the physicians embalm his father. Arranges for it to be preserved, no doubt, for the trek up to Canaan so that he can be buried there, so that his bones can be laid to rest in good condition. And we can observe already, we'll note this several times, that there's a good relationship here between the people of Israel through Joseph and the people of Egypt. They're doing Joseph's bidding, of course, because he is the, the grand vizier, the, the prime minister, you could say, of, of Egypt, because God revealed the dreams to him and Pharaoh put him in charge of the project to take advantage of the seven years of plenty and then uh, provide for the people in the seven years of famine, which was, of course, what brought the family of Israel out of Canaan into Egypt. But we'll notice as we go along that there are numerous points of contrast under the pen of the author Moses between this present relationship with Egypt, which is good, and the future relationship between Egypt and Israel, which actually sours in the very next chapter of the Bible, Exodus chapter 1. But here, Joseph is honoring Jacob's body as he's mourning along with the Egyptian people. The Egyptians wept for him. Seventy days, it says in verse 3. But then you also notice in verses 4 through 6 that Joseph honors not just his body, but Jacob's wishes by securing permission from Pharaoh to leave and bury him. The days of mourning are past, and Joseph approaches Pharaoh, as is right for him to do, his employer, his ruler, his commander, and seeks appropriate permission to leave so that he can honor his father's wishes of a burial in Canaan. And we noted back in chapter 48 as Jacob secured this promise from Joseph and the the divine commentary on this that we get in Hebrews 11, that Jacob by faith made plans concerning his bones. We kind of inferred that from what the Bible says about Joseph making the same plans about his bones. This is an act of faith that Jacob had, that God will give us this land. We have one little tiny postage stamp of land in this wide land that God is going to give us. And I believe he's going to bring us back, even though we're not there now. So I want my bones buried there, is what Jacob says. And Joseph honors his father's wishes. 
and Pharaoh gives his blessing. And we can observe again, and I'll highlight this, it becomes even more clear in the next section. Joseph, certainly he's blessing Israel by honoring his father, but he's also blessing his family by kind of mediating this relationship between Egypt and his family, this favorable relationship. And I think we're getting a sense as Moses is writing the account of the patriarchs and then into the record of the Exodus, the significance of a Pharaoh who arises who knew not Joseph. This wasn't just that, oh yeah, we had a kind of a one and done past in our history. Joseph is the, the one who is securing blessing for his family and this ongoing position of favor in the land of Egypt in which they are foreigners. And Joseph is blessing his family by mediating that relationship. And we noted in another sermon that God had begun fulfilling his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through them to be a blessing to the whole earth. God had begun to fulfill that in Joseph. How is Joseph a blessing to the whole earth? Certainly by preserving many people alive. But Joseph now is turning that blessing back on his own family in God's grace bringing such favor upon them. And I believe another emphasis here in the divine record in this present relationship compared with the future one that turns sour under a new Pharaoh, who is the one who makes the departure? Who makes the change? Is it the people of Israel who have decided that they're trying to conquer or they're trying to do something different than what they had done? No. It's the new Pharaoh who's out of line. He's the one who makes the, the departure in every way from the favor that Israel is rightly shown here. But notice in the next several verses, he honors Jacob's body. Joseph honors Jacob's wishes, and now he's honoring Jacob's memory with what we could call Egypt's aristocrats and their, their allies. Notice who goes with him. Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all of Joseph's family, and Jacob's family. There's a great company that goes with them, and there's honor that Jacob has shown. And once again, this is where it comes right out into the foreground, this contrast between then and the time of the Exodus. Here, all Egypt is honoring Israel. There's universal Egyptian approval of Israel. And there's also this kind of echo into the future. Maybe you remember what the, the next Pharaoh suggests at one point when Moses is demanding that he let the people go. They leave their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. They intend to come back. This is exactly what Pharaoh recommends later on. You can go a few days into the wilderness and leave your, your flocks. And Moses says, no, God intends to bring us out now. But even as we note this great company that's honoring Jacob and surely Joseph as well, we should remember that isn't this honor being shown to Jacob quite contrary to his expectation? In the lowest points of Jacob's life, when his son, he thinks, has been slaughtered by an animal, 
his favorite son, Joseph. When his next favorite son, Benjamin, is, it seems that he's going to be taken from him and he's fearful of harm befalling him. What does he keep saying? Genesis 37, 35, Surely I will go down to the grave in sorrow for my son. If harm befalls him, this is Benjamin, you'll bring my gray hair to Sheol in sorrow. When he reports to Pharaoh, when he comes to Egypt, few and unpleasant have been the days of my life, and they do not attain to those of my father's. At the worst times of his life, Jacob expected to go to his grave full of sorrow and loneliness, didn't he? And yet, God in his grace has given this deceitful, faltering patriarch great honor in his death. Proverbs 10.24 says, What the wicked fears will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted Shouldn't we learn from what the hymn writer says? Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Isn't that what Jacob did so many times in his life? But trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower you know this to be true? Wasn't this true of Jacob? Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. We can learn from the example of Jacob here, even now that he's gone, and God is granting him something that he did not expect, that we ought to become convinced that what we see in this life with our feeble five senses. That's not all there is to know. Isn't our earthly perspective limited? There are things going on beyond our understanding that we just have to trust God about. And he can reverse even the most dire of circumstances if he chooses. So do you trust him? Are you trusting him in life? to do what is right and good. He is wise beyond our understanding. So all Egypt goes with him, but also this, there's international recognition as that this is a funeral of a great man. Do you notice this little insertion about the Canaanites in verse 11? The inhabitants of the land where they're going, the Canaanites saw the morning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Or it's a, a heavy ritual, you could say, literally. And specifically for the Egyptians is what they recognize. The emphasis is on the Egyptians are doing this for Jacob. Everybody knows it and everybody approves of it. Everybody thinks it's the right thing. And again, there's a clear contrast between this mourning for Israel by the Egyptians and what will come in the posture of Egypt toward Israel later. But even here, I believe there's an example for us to note and to, to follow. We should recognize that it's appropriate to honor those who deserve honor. Someone who's honorable in life ought to be honored in death as far as their influence has reached. I believe that's part of what's going on. 
Jacob no doubt had influence in his 17 years living in Goshen. But why are all of these people coming with Joseph? Certainly not only because of Jacob. It's because of Joseph. And who has influenced Joseph and made him such a blessing to all of the known world? Certainly we have to say that it's Jacob. He's his father. He's largely responsible for who Joseph became. Certainly Joseph was on his own from the time he was 17. And he was a great man of faith by God's grace. But there is something appropriate about Jacob uh, receiving honor because of the blessing that his son had been to all of them. Can't that be an observation to encourage us about influence, maybe, on just a few or just one, maybe just one child? Jacob was honored, and rightly so. He was the father of the greatest in Egypt. And though death does come to us all, and you see it with Jacob, you see it with Joseph, everybody dies. There is an influence that can be felt beyond the grave, beyond the grave, particularly through children, as Jacob had here through Joseph. So there's much honor and blessing to show at the passing of a parent. And Joseph is certainly a commendable example of doing so in this, in this case. So in all of this, Joseph honors his father by fulfilling all of his wishes exactly as he requested. And he's a blessing to his extended family by mediating this favorable relationship with Egypt. There's, there's honor and blessing all around the family of Israel at the death of its founder, Jacob, also named Israel, because of Joseph. So he's blessing Israel by honoring his father. But next, in this next scene, Joseph blesses Israel by forgiving his brothers, contrary to their fear and their guilt. You see initially in verses 12 through 14 that they're actually united in their mission. His sons did for him as he charged them. His sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned. Their solidarity and their obedience to their father. Their faith, I believe, is on display as they're honoring their father's wishes. And there's this another deposit here in the land of Canaan that was promised to them. And they returned to Egypt as one. And you may ask, why return? Why not stay there? I believe we have an answer in the promises God has given to these patriarchs. Genesis 46, Israel is about, Jacob is about to move down to Egypt. He sets out with all that he has, comes to Beersheba right before he's going to cross the river. It's kind of the point of no, no return, the exit point of the land of Canaan. He offers sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac, and God appears to him in visions of the night and says, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. Some of that has happened. Some of that had not yet. It was not time for God to bring them up. Certainly they weren't a great nation yet. If you turn even further back to Genesis 15, 
God says something similar to Abraham years before. Genesis 15, verse 13, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. That's already happening in Joseph's day. Where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. That's pretty specific to Abraham. And no doubt this is a promise Joseph was aware of. And Joseph and his brothers were operating based on. The time's not right. God still wants us in Egypt. He's going to allow us to grow. And if you use a little bit of imagination... You wonder how much they thought about, how are we going to end up enslaved? Why is God going to do that? But God said he would. And it wasn't yet. But he would bring them out himself. So initially, the brothers are united in their mission. But eventually, they're very divided because of fear and guilt. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said. This was the occasion of their fear. Dad's dead. Dad's gone. And they suppose Jacob was the only thing keeping Joseph from getting the revenge that they expect they probably would get if they were in his shoes. And the fact is, there's a reminder here, it is a vulnerable time, isn't it? When a parent dies, when someone in a family dies, there is a lot of vulnerability in that family. And this is the occasion of their fear. They're very vulnerable right now. And they get very suspicious of Joseph, and they imagine this scenario. What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? They've got their eyes on the scoreboard, don't they? And the score's not even yet, and they're waiting for it. Proverbs 28, verse 1 says, The wicked man flees when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Isn't this what guilty people tend to do? They expect other people to do what they think they would do. They expect the worst of other people, and their guilt eats them up. They can't get away from it. And we should observe here, if you do a little bit of math, if you pick up on the, the different ages and the markers of time in the book of Genesis, it has been 40 years since they sold Joseph into slavery. Joseph was 17 when they sold him. He was 30 when he stood before Pharaoh. Seven years, if it's all right in a row. Seven years of blessing. His family comes down two years later. Two years into the famine, Jacob lives there for 17 years, and then he dies. These men are in their upper 50s, probably low 60s, all of them, maybe except for Benjamin. They were all with four mothers. They're all born within about seven years of each other. Joseph's probably around six, 56, something like that, at this point in his life. They did this when they were 20. This is the majority of their life ago. And isn't there a lesson here? 
There is no amount of reform or penance that can cure a guilty conscience. If you've ever read Nathaniel Hawthorne's novel, The Scarlet Letter, you know in that book that that graphic illustration of a man with a guilty, of, with a guilty conscience, the, the town minister, Arthur Dimsdale, is his, the character's name, in uh, early Massachusetts life. He's perpetually tormented with his guilt over his sin with the character Hester Prynne, the outcast adulterer of the town. Nobody knows who it was except for him. He tries piety. He tries penance. He tries good works. He, tries, he even tries to harm himself, but he can never outrun the torment of the truth of his guilt until it finally ends up being the death of him in that story. If we use the words of that verse, nothing can make you bold as a lion but righteousness. So what's the solution? If you're guilty, if you've done something wrong, if you've sinned, if you've offended God or someone else, repent of sin. This is the Bible's answer. Certainly to God, but also seek reconciliation with other people too. That's what these brothers needed to do. Won't you be free from that burden of sin? God would take it from you and banish it as far as the east is from the west. As we'll talk about, Lord willing, in Christian Life Hour, he'll never bring it up against you again. This is what God does when he forgives. But you must humble yourself. God gives grace to who? To the humble. He resists the proud. If we confess our sins, he will forgive. He's faithful and righteous to do so. Won't you do that today? If there's some sin, Christian, in your life that, that you haven't sought reconciliation over, or unbeliever, there's condemnation for you. Romans 8 one says, Therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you're not in Christ Jesus, there is condemnation. There is the wrath of God waiting for you. And you are as guilty as these men. But notice the clarity these men had gained from their father. Apparently, he told them how to come to Joseph in verse 16. They sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph. He's giving them words to bring to Joseph. He knows what they need to do. And if you read this, as I have, I, I don't believe there's any need to assume that they're making this up any more than Joseph made up his words to Pharaoh. We just happen to have a record that most, uh, Jacob actually did say those things, and then Joseph repeated them. Perhaps these men are making this up to try to save their own skin. We wouldn't necessarily put it past them, but I don't believe we have to understand that here. Maybe it's just unrecorded. And it is wise counsel, what they say, which they do act on. And it's interesting to note here that they identify themselves. Did you see that in verse 17? As the servants of the God of your father. They see themselves as God's slaves now. 
They've learned a lot, even if they haven't learned everything. And all of this greatly saddens Joseph. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. They misunderstand him. They, they fear him. They suspect him. They withdraw from him. And, and if you notice in these verses, all of it is us versus him. We did this. They, they expect division. And Joseph doesn't want that. They misunderstand him, and they've missed a wonderful lesson about God that Joseph was able to learn. And we should observe here for our learning that suspicion sows discord, and only grace can overcome it. Joseph responds with grace, but what if he didn't? They're suspicious. They're attributing false motives to him. And that's going to sow discord in the family. That's going to drive the wedge deeper. And perhaps you've been on either side of that. Perhaps you've been the one who is suspicious, maybe due to a guilty conscience. Maybe you've been the recipient of that, of misunderstanding. How do you respond to that? Only grace can overcome that. It's true that false accusation sows discord. But what can we do about it? What did Jesus do about it? And what do they do next? They cast themselves on his mercy. They, they seek to make it right, even if they are fearful and self-preserving in doing it. And the thing that astounds me about all of this, if you think scripture isn't relevant to your life, who would think we'd need instruction on how to conduct ourselves at the death of someone in our family or the death of a parent? But scripture really does apply to things like this. It does give us examples to learn from. And we do well to avoid the example of the brothers and embrace the example of Joseph, wouldn't we? He's a godly example of, of a tender time in the life of a family. So they start out unified in their, in their purpose to do what their father asked them to do, but they're, they come to be divided because of sin in the past on the part of these brothers and sin in the present. They're fearful and suspicious. But eventually, finally, they're reconciled because of Joseph's belief in God's grace and his providence. You see what he does in verse 19. He kindly allays their fears by reminding them of his role and God's role. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Joseph knows that it's God's right and God's alone to take what? To take vengeance. He's learned this lesson. And we should keep in mind at this point how dire this situation is for these brothers. Joseph has the law on his side. They really did do something wrong, and now Joseph has the opportunity to take revenge. And how easy would it be for someone who has very little accountability to justify what he's doing in terms of justice? Do you think he could do that? And we would all probably feel kind of good for him, right? He finally got him. And he didn't even have to do anything wrong, maybe. Vengeance is mine, God says. I will repay. And though there are earthly judges to whom God has granted some of this responsibility for administering justice on the earth for the good of mankind, God is the judge who will take ultimate revenge. Joseph knows that's God's right, and he knows he is not in God's place. That's not his role. 
He knows God's judge, and he acknowledges that he can't, he won't step into God's role. This is a very wise and humble thing to admit, and no doubt rehearsed over many years. This is not something he just came up with in the moment. This is something he's had to think about and tell himself repeatedly. What's the beginning part of that verse in Romans? Vengeance is mine. Never take your own revenge. Leave room for the wrath of God. God is the judge, and when we take our own revenge, part of what we do is we put ourselves in God's place. Do you see the pride of this? Joseph knew God's role, and he knew what his role wasn't, but what was his role? Joseph knew his only option was to forgive his brothers. As a godly and wise man who believed in Yahweh, he knew that holding a grudge was not an option for him, and it shouldn't be for us either. And in fact, there's even a hint of instruction that he gives his brothers. Don't fear me. What's the implication? Fear God. Am I in God's place? He's the judge. So he allays their fears and reiterates his role and God's role. But then in the next verse, Joseph, I believe, is wisely interpreting for his brothers the story of what's gone on based on God's kind providence. What does he say? As for you, you meant evil. You calculated evil. This word is translated elsewhere. You devised it. You purposed it. You planned it. You invented evil, wickedness, harm against me. And we should note here very carefully, forgiving doesn't mean forgetting. Joseph hasn't forgotten. God doesn't forget. God promises never to bring it up again. And forgiveness doesn't mean pretending either. What does he call it? You intended evil. He doesn't whitewash it. Oh, it was just kind of a misjudgment on your part. That's not what forgiveness does. Forgiveness doesn't whitewash the sin. Forgiveness deals with it in all of its ugliness and its harm and calls it what God calls it. What they did was sinful, wicked, genuinely hateful, evil. He's not pretending, Joseph's not. And neither should we when we're dealing with our own sin or the sin of others against us. No one is ever served by distorting the truth, whether we exaggerate it or whether we minimize it. There's something better in forgiveness. You devised calculated evil against me. God meant it for good. God calculated it for good. God purposed it for good. God planned it for good. He invented it for good. Same word. In order to bring about the present situation to preserve many people alive. God doesn't just have a role to play as the judge of sin. He has a plan in place to overrule human sin. What the brothers intended for one thing, God intended for something completely different and infinitely better because he's God. 
and he's good. And if you just go back to that scene, on that day when Joseph kind of naively walked into the trap and his, his brothers, these men so cocky, as they brutalized him, helpless, legends in their own minds, thrilled with the lust for blood, barely satiated to enslave him, just on the brink of killing their own brother against all his cries for mercy. This is heartless. This is controlling. This is the, the epitome of helplessness from Joseph. So in control in the moments of their abuse, so big, so powerful. Now in the end, they're shown to be puny and pathetic, wicked worms that God used to do a kind thing with to them. Have you ever faced up to the awesome wisdom and counsel and power of God in such a thing like this? When was the last time you were just in awe of God and his absolute sovereignty over you and over all men? Proverbs 16.9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Have you wrestled with this? Man plans, God directs, God controls, he governs, he rules, he manages, he leads. Proverbs 19.21, many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. How many desires do you have in a day? How many plans do you make in a week? How many things do you set out to do even on one day off of work? Whose plans will endure? Whose plans will last? Whose will always come to pass, whether or not the plans of men fail or succeed? God's will does. Always. Here's one relevant for today. All of it is, no doubt. Psalm 33, 10 and 11. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Isn't this a precious truth to us? It ought to be a tremendous comfort to us as we meditate on this. Can God take terrible tragedies of war and use them for some grand purpose in his wisdom and grace? Yes. Can God frustrate the plans of a nation targeting civilians in war? Of course he can, if that's his plan. His plan stands forever. Can God scuttle the plans of the free world to allow a seemingly unjust ruler to expand his influence? Or can God allow wickedness to increase in a nation as ungodly rulers are repeatedly empowered? Yes. In every case, yes. God's will stands forever. No counsel of his will ever be thwarted. And who are we to tell God what he must do? Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. God controls these things. God does these things. We can never charge God with sin. But we fail to honor God when we fail to admit that he does these things. God meant it for good. God's providence cannot be thwarted. His sovereignty can be limited in no way. Read God's response to Job in Job 38 through 42 and Job's final response. I lay my hand on my mouth, Lord. I know that you can do all things. You can do whatever you please. No one can stay your hand. Do you believe this? Does this all put you in awe of God? Does it fill your mind with wonder for him? We can't comprehend God. He is bigger and better than we can imagine. Wiser, more powerful. One of the interesting passages that comes in the book of Job, and Job, if you want to read it this afternoon, Job 26, verses 5 through 14. Job is recounting some of the wonders of God in creation. And he says, these are but the fringes of his ways. If, if, we, if we dip our toes in the ocean of what we know about God, it's just, just a couple drops of all there is to know. This is how big and awesome and good God is. And then finally, in verse 21, Joseph graciously affirms his affection for them. His faith is in the right place, so the people who wronged him don't need to be afraid. It's the people who don't trust God who do the most damage, isn't it? And we could also ask, do you, do you fear the wrath of man more than the wrath of God? It seems that's what the brothers have done here. And they didn't need to fear Joseph's wrath, but they did. He speaks to their heart. And you see the genuineness of his response here. He comforted them and spoke kindly to them, or he spoke to their heart. You can just kind of picture this man just heartbroken over what they think he might do and really wanting to assure them. And he's coming next to them and looking them in the eye and wanting to get that kind of confirmation from them that, yes, please believe me. I've forgiven you. I'm going to take care of you. I love you. It's not just some announcement and then he retreats to his ivory tower. It's tender. And I believe God's posture of patience and mercy towards these men shaped Joseph's response to be one of patience and mercy. Even as we see this providence in the life of Joseph, don't we see a very similar thing in the life of Christ? You meant it for evil, Joseph said. Could Jesus say this? People who hated him, they made a farce of justice to kill a political and a religious enemy because they were filled with hate and unbelief and jealousy. It was deplorable what they did. It was unfair, unjust. It was wrong. 
but God meant it for good? Do you see how much wider significance this has? That was the plan of God from eternity. And these sinful men willingly, but unknowingly, stepped right into God's plan. How can this be? Certainly this is a mystery to us, but one to rejoice in. If you consider even just one comment by the early church to this effect, men of Israel from Peter in his sermon at Pentecost, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And this is a refrain that's repeated throughout the sermons of Acts. The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God planned this in eternity past. How could he know? His ways are higher than our ways. His ways are past finding out. And what was the present result, present even today, that God brought about? Saving many people, not just from a famine, but from eternal death. God has saved many people by the worst miscarriage of justice the world has ever known. That pure and innocent and righteous God-man who had only ever done good and spoken what is true and right, who obeyed God perfectly. He was spotless by any measure you put him up against. And yet he was brought to trial and sentenced under the law and put to a death as a criminal. Why? 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 You think Joseph asked? Why did God do this? Because in his great plan of grace, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. By his wounds we are healed. By his blood we are reconciled. That worst tragedy in human history was turned into the greatest triumph. Are you in Christ today? Are you among those who have been preserved alive? Finally, in this last scene, very quickly, Joseph blesses Israel by comforting his family with God's promises. You see his faith in these verses. He believed these promises, and then because he believed them, they are the comforts that he himself drew on and that he comforts others with. He said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you want to write down a cross-reverence, Genesis 48, 21, this is the exact comfort that Jacob administered to him. Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. The promise that comforted Jacob is now comforting Joseph near his death. And the promise that Jacob comforted Joseph with, he now comforts his family with. And there are several applications we can draw. Are God's promises your comforts? Is that what comforts you? But there's also great blessing 
and nourishing a family on the promises of God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, his sons and their sons after them. Joseph was accustomed to running his mind over God's promises. And that extended into his old age. And that's a commendable example in itself. Faith, even at the end of life. But then also we should note, as Paul does in 2 Corinthians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Isn't that wonderful? So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In God's grand wisdom and plan, one of God's purposes in comforting his people, which is enough as it is, is that they would share that comfort with others. Is that something that you do? Do you feed yourself on God's promises? Do you feed your family on God's promises? Do you share that with others? That's part of the truth and love that we can share with one another to build one another up in love. Praise, praise the Lord. So in this final chapter of the book of beginnings, we see the end of the beginnings and the end of the patriarchs of Israel. And on, I think what we could call a note of grace, God tolls that bell of his promises one more time. And we know the next chapter. We know things are about to get real bad. A Pharaoh is about to come who knew not Joseph. And all of God's promises are about to be thrown into doubt, it seems. But God is faithful forever. Generation upon generation toward those who fear him. And he will keep his word. Do you trust him? Do you believe him? Is he your God? I trust he is. Let's pray. Father, you are great and wise and faithful and sovereign beyond all our understanding. Help us to humble ourselves before you and to take what you give us with humble, trusting hearts. Lord, we are so weak. And we tend to be fearful of what you might send or that what you do might not be good. But may your character never come into doubt in our minds. As feeble as we are, give us faith to believe and to trust. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.